Neil, and our first passage from the Bible can be found on page 8 of your zines and comes from Haggai, starting at chapter 1, verse 1, and going to chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, Joshua, son of Zedek, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld the dew and the earth its crops. I call for a drought on the fields and the mountains and on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Zedek, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Zedek, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Zedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I, once more, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace declares the Lord Almighty.
The second reading comes from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. When it was Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Good afternoon. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Craig. I'm the minister here at uh, the Garrison Church. And if I haven't had a chance to say good day to you yet, I uh, extend that to you now. Welcome to church. And uh, you'll find here at 4 p.m. every week, um, what we do is we open up a bit of the Bible and we try and make sense of it. And we do that because we believe that. Uh, the Bible is actually a book which um, records the interaction of um, God with this world. Um, that's a pretty huge thing. And so we seek to try and trace it and make sense of it um, because we're part of this world and we think it is both of value and life-giving to understand and understand what is in the Bible, both for ourselves and also of God. And so um, Neil has just read to us from this Old Testament book in the Bible, Haggai. Uh, we've been exploring the 12 minor prophets, and uh, this is the third last prophet in our Old Testament. And we're going to be reflecting on this prophet this afternoon. And I hope in some way, as we reflect upon this part of the Bible, um, that it might be encouraging, um, perhaps challenging, Perhaps you might learn something new about the Bible that you didn't know before. Um, and so I'm just going uh, to pray for us that as we read God's Word, um, His Spirit will help us to understand it, because um, that's something that we're encouraged to do in the Bible. And so let me pray and ask God to help us this afternoon. Our dear Lord and loving Heavenly Father. Lord, as we read this passage from your, your word, from a prophet who lived thousands of years ago, I just ask that you may help us make sense of it in a way that leads us to understand you better, to perhaps love you more, and that we might see ourselves in a new light. And so lead us, Lord, by your spirit to hear whatever it is we need to hear this afternoon. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I had a question that was on...
with what we're reading today, and the question is this, how do you think um, God's presence and his rule is experienced today uh, in Sydney? How do you think God's presence and God's rule is experienced uh, today in our city, if it indeed exists at all? How is it experienced? Um, Because we are reading our third last minor prophet, Haggai, and this prophet that we're reading is actually all about God's presence and his rule. Um, But before we can really grasp the message of this ancient prophet, uh, we actually need to do some serious upskilling. The Bible is a historical text that goes over hundreds of years, and especially with Haggai, uh, unless you understand other aspects of the story of Israel, it makes it really hard to understand what he's going on about. And so this afternoon, as we come to try and make sense of this part of the Bible, we also have to make sense of a few other things first. And so I hope it might be both... um, um, I'm trying to think of a cool way to say educational. What is that? Insightful? Um, Fun? Enlightening? I don't know what it's going to be. Did you say fun, Manny? Yeah. We have a range of teachers here with us, so they celebrate that answer. It's going to be a little educational. We're actually going to learn. You might learn something brand new that you didn't really know about the Old Testament and, and things in the Bible. And specifically, if we're going to grasp the shape and purpose of this book, we're going to have to understand the Old Testament temple, um, because this prophet Haggai will make far more sense if you understand this thing called the temple that we read about in the first half of our Bibles. And in that, in turn, hopefully will lead us to answer the question, how can we actually experience God's presence and rule today, right now, in Sydney, in your lives? And so that's our plan. A bit of upskilling, there's going to be a bit of history as well. And then we're actually going to work out what is God doing now in this world uh, as we pull apart his word to us. So, in order to get into this book Haggai, first of all, we have to be introduced to something uh, different to Haggai, something called the tabernacle. Not sure if you've ever heard of the tabernacle. It's uh, a place that we read of in the Old Testament. You read about it in Exodus chapter 26. Go in your Bibles, have a look. Put simply, the tabernacle was like a glorified tent uh, that suited nomadic people who moved around, Uh, the Israelites, actually, in the Old Testament. This tent was special, however, because it symbolized God's presence amongst his people. So, in effect, in the context of Exodus, we have God saying, I have rescued you from Egypt, we read about that in Exodus, through Moses, and now I am with you as you grow up as my world-shaping people. The Israelites were not to put any image or symbol in this tent because God couldn't be limited to a statue or an icon. Um, Rather, the focal point of this holy tent was what's called the Ark of the Covenant, um, made famous by Indiana Jones, but it was way more famous before then. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. And that was a symbol of God's rule. It was his word, a great word, his life-giving ways. This tabernacle, therefore, was a representation of God's presence and his rule kind of intertwined. Two other things to note of this holy tent was that 
It was in the middle of the camp, so it was central to their identity. It wasn't on the outside, it was right in the middle, and it had a structure. It had an outer court and an inner court, and then sort of a holy space. And the point being that the further you went into this tabernacle or tent, uh, the less people were allowed to enter. A lot in the outer, fewer in the inner court, and then only the priest could go into this special holy place to give a sacrifice on behalf of the people. Now remember, this was a tent that would be packed up and moved when the nation shifted from campsite to campsite from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, which means no one particular space was more mystically holy than another. The whole point is the tabernacle setup was given as a clear and helpful symbol of a much greater reality of a God who is at work in this world. And the final thing to know about the tabernacle at the center of the camp was that this was the place that sacrifices were given in this ancient culture. Um, there was a very specific and deliberate order to the Israelite sacrificial system. So firstly, what would happen, a sacrifice and burnt offering was given for the sins of the priest. Then a sacrifice and burnt offering was given for the sins of the people. And then finally, there was a thanksgiving offering. And that was given uh, as a symbol that God has forgiven the faults of the people and the broken relationship had been restored. But it was interesting, even in the Old Testament, throughout Leviticus and, and through the prophets, it was made clear that forgiveness of sins did not come about mechanically through giving a sacrifice. It's not like you just put your coin in the Coke machine, you get a Coke. It wasn't just like, well, I give a sacrifice, I get forgiven, I go on with life. No, because just like the tabernacle, sacrifices were symbolic as well. Uh, they were a symbol of God's grace towards those who were genuinely repentant, who sought in humility to continue to grow up following God's word. Now, it's fair to say a lot of other stuff happened amongst the nation of Israel. You can read it all in the Old Testament. But the tabernacle was central to its identity. We are God's people. He is amongst us. He calls us to live holy lives, which are actually a blessing to the world. And when we fall short, we come before him with humble, repentant hearts. We give a sacrifice to represent that whilst rejecting the God of the universe should result in the end of our lives, by his grace, that punishment has been placed on a sacrificial lamb. That was their setup. Now, I said at the start that the minor prophet Haggai is all about the temple. And you're thinking, Craig, you haven't even mentioned the temple yet. That's true. But now that you understand the tabernacle, uh, you understand the temple. Because once Israel settled in Canaan and established Jerusalem as their capital city, King Solomon built the temple, which was basically a glorified, established, going nowhere because our journey is over version of the tabernacle. Outer courts, inner courts, holy space, sacrifices were made. It's in the center of Jerusalem. So does that sort of make sense of this temple? If you've read any of your Bibles, you would have read of it. But that's central to the Old Testament. Okay. So now we're reading the prophet Haggai. And Haggai is actually written. So that's our little kind of upskilling in Bible information. Now we actually need a little bit of historical upskilling to really make sense of Haggai, because Haggai is written after what's called the exile. 
Um, That means it's late in ancient Israel's history. The nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. We've been looking at this a lot. The Bible is extremely historical. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Uh, We know in 722 BC, the Israels came in and destroyed Israel. Then in 587, Judah was actually invaded uh, by the Babylonians and all the people of influence in Judah were taken back to Babylon. That's known as the exile. It's kind of a big theme in the Bible. Um, Something else happened in 587. The Babylonians totally destroyed the temple. Historical event, you can read about it in the texts. They smashed it to bits. And they took all the special items in the temple. They took it back to Babylon. It was like this sign that you're you're a defeated people. Now remember, the temple was always a symbol of something greater. But now that symbol is gone. The presence of God is no longer amongst them. Sacrifice for sins is gone. There's nowhere to do it anymore. Their whole identity as God's people is gone. And really at that point in history for them, evil has kind of won. God has been defeated. Um, Or so it would seem. (laughs) Because if there's one thing we learn in the Bible... Uh, It is that God is present in the mess. He is present in the mess, not absent from it. And so it is here. And so you actually read, historically and in the Bible, after 40 years of exile, uh, the Israelite people were actually freed from Babylon. They were sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. However, once they come home and start rebuilding the temple... The neighboring nations become worried that Judah was rebuilding itself as a political power. They start freaking out. They write to the king of Babylon um, called Artaxerxes. It's not just from the movie 300. But, um, and he demanded that he stopped the building of the temple. And uh, the king of Babylon heard this. He did it. He put a massive pause button and the second temple stopped being built. A new king of Babylon comes to the throne, King Darius, and right at that point is when Haggai, who we're reading, speaks to the people. And he calls them to get back into building this temple. It's the prophecy we actually have recorded for us today. It's written in front of you. And chapter 1, verse 2, we read, okay, so that's our upskilling, that's our history. Now let's actually read the book, so it gives us some sense, right? Chapter 1, verse 2 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're never warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. It's a pretty simple message from this prophet. Haggai looks at the people in Jerusalem and he says, wow, you guys are really comfortable. You've come back from exile. Uh, Your own houses are all built and they're actually looking pretty good. But God's temple is like it's still in ruins. And Haggai notes this prioritizing, I guess, of what he would call self before God hasn't seemed to work for you because you're restless. 
You eat but never have enough. You drink, never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're never warm. I wonder if at any point you've kind of experienced this. Um, that is, you kind of say, it's so common, you go like, I'll leave the God stuff to one side um, and then once I'm on top of everything in my life, I'll come back and I'll work on my spiritual life. But I, I've got no time for it right now because I've got all these other things I want to get done. I'm going to do that first, then I'll come back and think about anything God-like. But potentially the difficulty here is that our stance and our connection with God is the first block needed in getting our life sorted. We can get trapped focusing so much on ourselves and the more we focus on ourselves, the more there is a restlessness and it's this endless cycle. And this was certainly the issue for the nation of Judah. Um, and Haggai goes on to note that actually the poor weather, the drought, the poor crops is probably linked to God's people ignoring their God and putting themselves first. And so this is Haggai's frame-up to his prophecy. But thankfully, this situation doesn't last very long. There's the weirdest thing happens in this prophecy, which is someone actually listens to a prophet. It virtually never happens in the Old Testament. So this is like pure gold. And so we read, and the governor, Zerubbabel, hears Haggai's words and he responds. The high priest, Joshua, hears Haggai's words and he responds. The people hear Haggai's words, they respond, and together they start building the temple. They actually do it. And so in chapter 2, Haggai encourages them to continue their work, remember that God is with them. Not only that, he actually gives them this great vision. He says this, that one day the glory of this present house will be greater than the, presence, the glory of the former house. And in this place I will grant peace. And so the temple, which represented God's presence and rule, was going to be greater than ever before, and through it, people will find peace. Haggai finishes this prophecy. It's outside the Bible reading we had today. It's only two chapters, though. You can have a read. He ends it with a call for the people to mark this day of rebuilding, because from this day forward, the people will receive blessing from God. And his final promise is this. He says, here's these words from the Lord. I'm going to shake the heavens and earth. I'll overturn royal thrones. I will shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. In other words, in the future, somehow, through everything that's happening here, uh, God is going to have some kingdom or rule that is actually going to be greater than any other kingdom. And that's the end of the prophecy. Closed. Finished. Um, it's certainly a powerful and uplifting word for people who have returned from exile trying to rebuild their city. But the question for us is, what do we do with this word from Haggai? Um, to rebuild the temple and to seek its future glory. Um, and it is a genuine question. How do I make sense of this today in my life other than just interesting historical facts? Um, to be fair, I guess you could say it can lead us in several directions. You could interpret this text of the Bible in different ways. Um, it could lead us to take better care of our church building, right? Look at this space, beautiful space, but has anyone done any renovations here to their house this year, and did you do that before inquiring about renovations that could have been done to our church? Are you looking after your house before looking after the church? That could be a way we should interpret Haggai. Um, many of you know that 
last year, early this year, we actually put a new roof on this church. So should we expect blessing from God now? You've looked after my house, now there'll be blessing. We could interpret it this way for today. Um, I guess what we do with the words from Haggai will depend on what we think today's version of the temple is. And that's actually really important. At least the Bible thinks it's really important. For many people, the most obvious modern-day version of the temple is the church, like this building. It looks kind of temple-like. It's understandable. In fact, so much so that some people would say that this area up the back here, technically it's called the chancel, which we have lit up, is kind of a particular holy space. And uh, similar, they would say, to the temple in the Old Testament. Outer court, inner court, holy space. Some people would even call, you may hear this, you may have never heard this before, but some people will come up and they'll refer to that sort of wooden table up there as an altar. Very temple-like. I'd really encourage you, please don't call it an altar, because we haven't sacrificed anything on it, and we're never going to sacrifice anything on it. Um, That table up there is actually meant to be referred to as the Lord's table. It's actually meant to be a dinner table around which you have a meal, around which you have communion. Um, So we could say, well, maybe the modern-day temple is the church. But I want to suggest that's a really unhelpful way of thinking about the temple and what it is today. The Bible actually has a much grander description of the modern-day temple than this church building. And that space up there is no more holy than the space you're sitting in, and it's no more holy than the space that we had afternoon tea in. I take it all of the world is God's, so it's all holy. Remember, what did the temple represent? It represented God's presence and his rule amongst his people. And so in the Old Testament, if you wanted to experience God and know God, there was a sense that you would go to the temple. Now, what you do, an incredible movement happens as you plot through the Bible. And what the discerning reader finds is that this prophecy from Haggai actually comes true, but in the bizarrest of ways. And there are clues early on in John's gospel. There's a bunch of clues that help us understand what the modern day temple is. And here's the first one. In his prologue in the gospel of John, John writes this. He says, the word, which is his nickname for Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, our English translators have done a great job of trying to bring this text alive, but we miss something in their attempt to help us understand John's message because John actually wrote, when he wrote this in in his original pen, he said, the word Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, the translators don't put that in because they don't think anyone's going to know what tabernacled means. But you do now because you've been upskilled, and the original readers would have known what the tabernacle was. It was the precursor to the temple. So here John is saying, Jesus Christ tabernacled, he templed among us. So there's a first clue of where the Bible goes with the temple. In chapter 2 of John's Gospel, which Neil read out for us, things become much clearer. As Jesus is in Jerusalem... He's actually standing next to the temple that Haggai encouraged everyone to build. And he sees that it's being misused, and so he overturns the table. 
When asked what sign he gives to prove he has such authority to do this, Jesus says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And of course, the onlookers mock Jesus. Ridiculous, can't be done, you're a fool. But John, the writer, tells us, the readers, something to kind of help us. He adds in verse 21, he almost whispers this to us. The temple he had spoken of was actually his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. So Jesus is standing there, and he's not saying, tear down this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus is saying, tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. That's our second clue. And the third clue is this. What do the gospel, much quicker, what do the gospel writers record happened the moment Jesus died on the cross? They record for us that the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, the holy space is now open to everyone. That's our third clue. You see, Haggai's prophecy of a future temple greater than anything we can imagine, it came true, but in the most unexpected, weirdest way. God's presence and rule shifted from a place to a person. God's presence and rule, the new temple, was Jesus himself. He is the Holy One through whom sacrifices was made and through whom we have direct access to God as his people. And so there's this massive shift in the Bible, which is now, where do you go if you want to experience God? Well, you don't go to the physical temple, you go to Jesus, the Son of God, through whom you can know God, through whom sacrificed himself for your sin. That's why we don't do any sacrifices anymore. And it's not an altar, because there are no more sacrifices to give now that Jesus has given his life for the sins of the world. But the greatest part of God's plan was yet to come. It's already happened. I'll tell you about it. Having the glory of God, his presence and rule, show up in a person, Jesus, Jesus then gives his spirit to those who follow him. Uh, Jesus promises it in John 16. So that the presence and rule of God is within each of his people. Did you see what God is doing as he is working out his ways in this world? Do you see what you are a part of? Uh, this is why the Apostle Peter can write in his first letter. He says, as you come to Jesus, the living stone, he was rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Uh, God's plan, predicted by Haggai, but without much detail, involved a whole new way of reaching his world. And it's a thousand times more dynamic and flexible and agile than his temple. God's ultimate plan was never to just build a big stone temple and tell everyone in the world, well, you have to travel to that place to experience my presence. Rather... His presence will go out in an agile, responsive, dynamic way across the whole world through his son at work in the lives of his followers. 
The building we sit in this afternoon is not the modern temple. It's just a cool sandstone building that people put up in 1844. You, we are the modern day temple. That is the word of the scriptures. If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he has given you his spirit, his presence and rule is in your life. I asked at the start, how do you think God's presence and rule is experienced today in this world? Another way of asking it is, where's God's temple here in Sydney? And the answer is right here. Like, not in this space, but us. You and I, living under Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, allowing his word and spirit to change our lives and being a presence in the city in which he's placed us. This is why Jesus calls his followers to be light in a dark world or to be salt in a bland culture. We lead people to God's temple who is Jesus. Uh, We are witnesses of his presence and rule in our life. We extend invitations. Christianity is so invitational. We invite people into friendship. We invite people into generous lives. Uh, We invite people into volunteering to help the poor. Uh, We invite people into prayer. We invite people to read the Bible with us. We invite people to come share church on a Sunday. We are witnesses to Jesus' presence and rule, and then we are invitational. And we pray for God to do his work however he wishes to do it, through us living out our faith. Now, I know there's a whole range of us here at all different places in our faith journey, Um, but it's helpful to understand that central to Christian faith is not this idea that we turn up to this place once a week, we do our God thing, then we get on with our lives. Christian faith is actually about a daily experience of the presence and rule of God in your own life. And it's uplifting and it's joyful, and it's confusing, and sometimes leads to suffering. It's communal, it's dynamic. Uh, This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. It's incredible. And so I wonder that this week, what it may mean for us to be the temple of God. Um, it, as a community, it's going to involve how we relate to each other, how we love each other, how we serve each other. And perhaps there's someone here at church in our family who you might be able to serve or love in some way over this coming week. But then as we move out into our workplaces and our families and our friends and we become God's temple in just living out and being courageously honest about following Jesus. And we allow him to do his work through us. And this is really where the prophet Haggai leads us to. 
we're going to have a second bite of this cherry next week because we're going to be reading Ezra, and Ezra's all temple too. So there's going to be no upskilling. I'm going to expect that we come well-equipped, and we're going to look even further at what this idea means of being God's temple because Ezra is going to lead us there as well. Um, but for now, I want to encourage you, if there's anything that you have been really encouraging, you want to thank God for, um, or there's something you want prayer for, um, as you said, Emma and Caleb are going to be just hanging around the back. And if you want to pray with someone, um, we encourage you to go do that. It's not mystical or weird. It's just like, hey, I'd really love prayer for this thing in my life. And just pray together. Or you can just pray by yourself because God will hear that as well. Um, and so whatever you'd like to do. But I'm going to finish now with um, just a prayer that God may lead us closer to him and to sustain us as we seek to grow up as his children. So uh, let me pray. Uh, dear Lord and Father, we thank you that you are a God who rules over the whole world, um, the universe indeed. Um, Lord, I thank you that uh, even though our world is broken and painful at times and difficult, that you have given us the hope through your son Jesus um, that you have greater plans for this world and Lord until you return again to make all things new I ask Lord that you may lead each one of us to be your presence and rule in this life as we allow you to speak into our lives and change us and then as we seek to be a blessing to others and so lead us, Lord, both as a family, as a community here at 4 p.m., and also as individuals as we share our lives with others. Please fill us with your spirit for being the people that you've called us to be. And uh, we look forward to the day when we make all things new and that we share in the new creation together and feast in your house. And uh, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.